Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. And once again, there are many current events <laughs> which which could be based in a discussion of the Constitution. Where would you like to begin today? Well, I've just been advised a few minutes ago of the loss of a major figure in the conservative movement, particularly as conservative talk radio is concerned, and that is Rush Limbaugh. And I can remember listening to Rush Limbaugh. We would hear him on television, in fact, on at breakfast time in the morning, day after day, way back in the 1990s. And, of course, his main role was in radio. He was a fearless pioneer in this area. He certainly influenced many people, many people who listened to him, many people who took after him and pursued similar careers in localized talk radio programs. I remember listening once to Newt Gingrich, which he was talking about the role that talk radio played in the United States in the 1990s. And he made the interesting comment that it seems like talk radio is almost exclusively the province of conservatives and that liberals just weren't that interested in having talk radio programs and those that did, it seemed like they just didn't succeed very well. And he said that one of the reasons for this is that talk radio by its very nature is interactive. It involves grassroots people calling in and being free to express their ideas, which liberals in general today are not really liberal in the sense that we used to use the term. It used to be we used that term liberal for somebody in the tradition of America's founding fathers who wanted liberty, particularly the liberty to express ideas and to exchange ideas, to hear some ideas that we like, some we don't like, and some that absolutely infuriate us, but hearing them and, if necessary, refuting them nevertheless. But anyway, talk radio, he said, is by its nature interactive. That is, people call in. They express their opinions. Sometimes they agree with the host. Sometimes they disagree. And in that way, Rush Limbaugh was a pioneer in this major form of communication in America. Seems like today with television and with social media, a lot of people think talk radio is dead, that radio as a whole is dead. And yet millions of people listen to talk radio and participate in talk radio programs every day. It's a major form of communication. And this man, Rush Limbaugh, was a major pioneer in developing this particular form of communication. And I mourn his loss. I trust we'll see him again in heaven, but I certainly mourn his loss. He was a pioneer who had a major influence today. Hear, hear. I, I agree completely with, you know, a, a very powerful voice for freedom, for liberty, um, for good government, 
and and for traditional values, you know, which boy, you almost don't dare say that these days. But Rush, very, he was a very fearless voice and defender of those things. And yeah, his his loss and also is a man who died in harness, as we say that he was a man who was there broadcasting right up almost to the end. Yeah. Well, since uh, since the last time we talked, Colonel. The uh, the president's impeachment trial has has wrapped up, and uh, let's let's get your take on uh, what uh, what happened with impeachment 2.0. Well, with impeachment 2.0, of course, I saw on Quora one time somebody had written in. A lot of people that are on that website are just leftist fanatics who all they want to do is vent their hatred toward anything that is not quite as left as they are. But one person talked about the president now setting up the office of the former president and talked about how this was pompous and he should have called it to the office of the only president who has been impeached twice. Well, I just added a quick comment at the bottom of that and acquitted twice. (laughs) But at any rate, it was an impeachment that took place with some great gaps in the evidence. You know, at the House level, they did not even call witnesses. They didn't at the Senate level either, but they did look more at the evidence at the Senate level. And they presented evidence, although somewhat disputed, about how frightening the events of January 6th were. What they were utterly lacking in was any evidence that the president was complicit in those events. And again, the Defenders of the president, the president pointed out over and over that in his speech, he had urged people to go to the Capitol to make their voices heard peacefully and patriotically, and that the events, the violent events at the Capitol had already started at least 20 minutes before he finished his speech, and the speech was a mile and a half away, whether those who did that even heard it his speech is open to some question, that later in the day when it became apparent of the violence and lawlessness that was going on, he tweeted for his supporters to go home and utterly missing was any evidence of his being complicit in those events. Now, one of the things that's been brought out too, and strangely, even those who supported the impeachment were pointing this out, these lawless events had been planned some time in advance. Now, if there was any evidence that the president was aware of that or was participating in the planning of those lawless events, that might change the picture considerably. But if they had any evidence of this, they certainly did not present it. Anyway, as a result of the vote, I'm disappointed in Several of the Democrats, like Joe Manchin, who I thought might let common sense prevail over party affiliation, and several others in that category, but I'm even more disappointed in several of the Republicans who voted to convict the president, seven of them as a matter of fact, but it still was it still fell twelve or ten votes short of the necessary two-thirds majority. But as a result, The president remains free to run for office again if he chooses to do so. My thinking is that he will probably play more the role of a king maker than a king, 
And in today's climate in the Republican Party, I would say that it would be impossible for anyone to get the Republican nomination without Donald Trump's approval. But I have some doubts that he will be the candidate himself, and it may just be that this means God is taking the lead here and that this movement that has been started to make America great again, as Rush Limbaugh, I'm sorry, as, as Donald Trump said, this movement has only started, but it may well be that the mantle of leadership, or at least carrying the standard in it, is now going to have to be carried by somebody else, and that the role that President Trump will play will be a supporting role, but not the one to be in the forefront and running again. I'll say one thing else on this, and that's that on the question as to whether or not Vice President Trump had the authority to simply say, I will not accept any electoral votes that I think are questionable, that's open to serious question whether he had the authority to do that. And I think you have to consider that he was a loyal supporter of the president all the way through the president's term, and I would certainly not fault Vice President Pence for not having answered the president's call to do that. I thought he handled himself well there. There are a number of others, and as we look to possible candidates for 2024, DeSantos of Florida seems to be emerging as a major contender. I would not write off Vice President Pence. I would not write off some of those that didn't join in the challenge, like, for example, Tom Cotton. I probably would write off any that voted for impeachment, and I would write off any of those in the House that voted for impeachment as well. And my hope is that every one of those in the House that voted for impeachment will be challenged in a primary, and that if they voted their convictions, well, I respect that, but sometimes you have to pay for the price for standing for your convictions. You and I both have many times, and sometimes that's just the way things go. But I think with that, we can set the impeachment issue to rest and move on to Article 2. Okay. Now, the, Colonel, you were telling me uh, before we started today that uh, Article 2, we stand a very good chance of actually finishing that article. So I'm guessing this is one of the shorter articles of the Constitution. Are we still on? Uh-huh. Okay, so we'll be back in just a moment here then. And this is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We'll be right back. normal to be constipated with belly pain, straining and bloating again and again. No way. You could have a chronic condition called irritable bowel syndrome with constipation or IBSC. Linzess or linaclotide is a prescription that treats IBSC in adults. Linzess works differently than laxatives to help relieve belly pain and let you have more frequent and complete bowel movements. Individual results may vary. Do not give to children less than six and it should not be given to children six to less than 18. It may harm them. Do not take Linzess if you have a bowel blockage. Get immediate help if you develop unusual or severe stomach pain, especially with bloody or black stools. The most common side effect is diarrhea, sometimes severe. If it's severe, stop taking Linzess and call your doctor right away. Other side 
effects include gas, stomach area pain, and swelling. Talk to your doctor today. You may be able to save on Lens S and make fewer trips to the pharmacy. See if you're eligible to pay as little as $30 for 90 days. Visit LensS.com or call 1-800-L-I-N-Z-E-S-S. Sponsored by Abbey and Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for health insurance, or more importantly, if you sign up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare, and MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have more than 400,000 members now around the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2 billion of each other's medical bills, so they could help share your needs too. And best of all, you could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is around 500 bucks a month. Your savings could be more or less, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Pounds and pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsma with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we have been making our way through the Constitution and we are finally at Article 2. Where would you like to, what would you like us first to know about this article? Well, as you were suggesting, this may be one of the shorter articles when I say that we can get through this in one day, but I'm not sure we can get through it in one day, but it really isn't one of the shorter articles. Rather, it's an article that we've already covered a great deal of already. A good share of Article 2 is dealing with the qualifications for the president, and we already have addressed that issue that the president has to be a natural-born citizen. As I said before, even though I am a strict constructionist, I don't think that means that you have to engage in natural childbirth, the Lamaze method, to be eligible. That's reading the Constitution even more strictly than I would. There is a question about the citizenship requirement, Article 14, that is Amendment 14 of the Constitution, says all persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens. And some say that this means there can be no question that our Vice President, Kamala Harris, is a citizen because she was born here even though both of her parents were not citizens. There could be a question about what's meant by subject to the jurisdiction thereof, but we've already talked about that before, so we won't go into that again. 
Another thing that Article 2 deals with at great length is a question of how the president is to be chosen. The electors, how the electors are chosen, who's responsible for setting the procedure, what happens in challenges, as we've seen. A great deal of that is in Article 2, and that has been amended by the 12th Amendment and by several subsequent amendments. And we have dealt with those issues at great length in previous classrooms as those events have been occurring in this country, as the challenges have been raised. So we won't be going through all of those again. So let's just look at Article 2 as it is right now. And some say that this is the article that speaks about the most powerful office in the world, the office of the President of the United States. And if the President of the United States is not the most powerful person in the world, he would certainly be up there with Putin of Russia and the Premier of China and several others as being one of the top and most powerful three or four figures in the world. But Article 2 simply begins by telling us that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and together with the vice president chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. And we're not going to talk about the process of election because we've dealt with that at length. But chosen with the vice president. Now, initially, the president and the vice president were not necessarily running on the same ticket together. And the electoral college would meet and cast its votes. And the one who got the most votes, if it was a majority, would be the president. And the one with the second most votes would be the vice president. And as I've said before, one of the things that the framers did not seem to contemplate was that the day would come very shortly after that, within the next decade, in fact, that the nation would divide into political parties. The Federalists, the Democratic Republicans, the Whigs, the Democrats, now the Republicans and Democrats, and that the person who got the most votes and the person who got the second most votes might very well be diametrically opposed to one another and not working as a team. But anyway, that was changed then with subsequent amendments to where they do run together as a slate now, which was something that the framers didn't anticipate originally. But it says that the president shall hold office during a term of four years. Now, the four-year term, you notice, first of all, there is no limit here on how many terms. And originally, there were some different proposals. One suggestion was that the president should hold office for one single term, but of seven years. And some of the delegates to the convention thought that could be too long if we had a president that was unacceptable. And then there was a straw vote taken on whether or not there should be a limit of terms, two terms or even a limit of one term. And initially they decided they would have a two-term limit. But it was observed that George Washington had voted against that limit. And so they decided before the Constitution was completed that they would take that out. It simply said a four-year term, 
and then no limit on how many terms could be served. There were even a few suggestions that maybe he should serve one four-year term by the electoral process and then be subject to reappointment by Congress for four-year terms thereafter. But Madison in particular did not like that idea. He thought that would make the executive branch too dependent on the legislative branch. So anyway, they just simply set a four-year term and put no term limits on it. Washington then, as we know, served two terms. And then at the conclusion, he basically said that he thought two terms was enough for anybody to serve. And that set a tradition that presidents would not serve more than two terms. And that tradition continued until the 1940s when Franklin D. Roosevelt ran for a third term in the midst of a depression and the possibility of war, and then was elected to a fourth term in 1944, of which he only served a few months and died. And by the conclusion of that, by the conclusion of World War II, there was pretty much a consensus in America by that time that Washington had been right that two terms is enough. And so we have the 20th Amendment adopted in 1951, ratified in 1951, that says that the president cannot serve more than two terms. And that's where we get the limit as it is right now. Now, as I say, much of the rest of Section 1 of Article 2 is dealing with the method by which the election is going to take place, and we've covered that. So moving on to the close of Section 1, we see that the president shall receive compensation for his term for services. Further, that the compensation may not be increased or decreased during his term of office, but then he's not supposed to receive any other kind of payment from any state or from any federal agency during his term of office. And this became an issue with Ronald Reagan, because when Reagan became president in 1981, he was eligible to receive a retirement pension from his services as governor of California. And so the issue came, does this, is this precluded by the emoluments clause here? And anyway, the legal department looked at this and they concluded that since that was a fixed amount by California law and not something to be rewarded to him in return for certain favors that you might do, that that did not violate that particular clause. The president also was required to take an oath of office, and other officers are too, but his is specified word for word, that he is to preserve and protect and defend not the nation, not the Congress, not the White House, but the Constitution of the United States. Washington took that oath and added, so help me God which became a tradition that every president thereafter has followed. And since then, every president has given his oath with those words, so help me God. And so that brings us to the conclusion of section one of article two. And as soon as we come back, we'll be talking about his role as commander in chief. Here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network.
are listening to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we are making our way through Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, Section 1. We can check that one off. Lead us into Section 2. Before we get into Section 2, I might just mention something quickly that I think our listeners need to be aware of because it certainly has constitutional implications. We have seen an election where a number of things were done that we thought were violations of the Constitution and also lent themselves to fraud and abuse. There is a bill that is being introduced in Congress by the Democrat leadership. It is titled the For the People Act. And when you see an act called For the People, that probably by itself should lead you to conclude that maybe there is more to this than meets the eye. It is referred to as House Resolution 1, and basically it takes every unconstitutional and illegal thing that was done in the 2020 election and making that a requirement in each of the 50 states and making it a permanent requirement. Among other things, if this bill is passed, it would force taxpayers in all 50 states to finance political campaigns you know, taxpayer-financed campaigns, something that I'm strongly opposed to, but at any rate, this happens in a few states, but this would make it mandatory. It requires that all states allow same-day registration, that is, registration voting on the same day, election day. It would require all states to allow advanced voting, and then quite a few other things like this. Now, I think this is not only a very unwise idea, I think it is patently unconstitutional because Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution says that the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Congress has a few rights to make a few restrictions in this as well, but setting elections is a matter for state legislatures. I feel very strongly that if this bill is passed, it will be struck down as unconstitutional by the court. But nevertheless, it is a serious danger that we need to be very concerned about. Getting back to Article 2, the President of the United States and Section 2, we read that the President shall be the Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. And the word Army there, I think, is a generic word that means non-naval forces in general, so it would include the Air Force and the Marines, and the word Navy would probably be broad enough to include the Coast Guard and the Merchant Marine as well. And also that he is the commander-in-chief of the militia of the several states when they are called into federal service. And the militia, of course, meaning the unorganized militia, that is all able-bodied citizens of a certain age in each state, but also the organized militia, which is the Guard, and the Guard with the National Defense Act of 1916 and a few other acts around that time has become much more of a federal agency than it used to be. But anyway, so he not only is Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, but also of the Guard when they are called into federal service and Congress provides the means by which the president calls the guard into service. And one example of this took place in the 1950s when Governor Faubus of Arkansas resisted a federal court order that the schools be integrated. 
And Governor Faub has called up the Arkansas National Guard to join him in the resistance of that order. President Eisenhower responded by calling the entire Arkansas National Guard into federal service so they would be under his command and not Governor Faubus's command. And anyway, the National Guard of Arkansas complied with the president and the resistance there died out. But at any rate, that is one of the powers of the president. But as we've seen in this whole area of foreign affairs, the, pres the power there is shared between the Congress and the president. And when we're talking about guard, by the states as well. But while well, the president is the commander in chief and conducts the day-to-day -day operations of the military, it is subject to the overall direction and more general terms of Congress as we saw back when we were looking at article one and section eight. We also see in section two that he has the power to require that officers of the government give him their opinions in writing. That's part of his role and making executive decisions, but doing so with their assistance. He also has the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. In other words, if an officer is impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate, the president can't overturn that, whether it involves himself or any other federal office. But any other federal offense the president has the power to grant a pardon or to grant a reprieve. There is some question whether that would include the power to pardon himself based upon the premise that no man should be the judge of his own cause. However, nothing in Article 2, Section 2 would limit the president of that way. We have another issue that arises here. First of all, we say that all federal offenses, it doesn't mean the president could pardon state offenses. In other words, if you are charged with an offense in state court and convicted in a state court, the president does not have any power to pardon there. The governor in most states would have that power, but the president does not have that power. Now, we had a very interesting case that arose back in the 1970s in regard to President Nixon. And after President Nixon had resigned from office and facing what looked like certain impeachment and removal, then his successor, President Ford, pardoned President Nixon of all offenses. And there was a lawyer who raised a challenge to this. The case was Murphy versus Ford. It went to the Supreme Court. And lawyer Murphy's challenge was that you can't pardon somebody when they haven't yet been even charged with a crime, let alone been convicted or sentenced. And the pardon therefore was premature. But the case went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court noted among other things, the words of Alexander Hamilton in Federalist number 74, when Hamilton argued for a very broad interpretation of the power to pardon, and he said, in seasons of insurrection or rebellion, there are often critical moments when a well-timed offer of pardon to the insurgents or rebels may restore the tranquility of the commonwealth and which is suffered to pass unimproved, it may never be possible afterwards to recall. 
the deletory process of convening the legislature of one of its branches for the purpose of obtaining the sanction to the measure would frequently be the occasion for letting slip the golden opportunity. The loss of a week, a day, or an hour may sometimes be fatal. And so Hamilton says that it's in the nature of the president's power to pardon that it should be timed whenever he determines it's appropriate, whether before charges are filed, during the trial, after, after trial, after sentencing, at any time. And anyway, so that was the opinion of the United States Supreme Court, and that opinion seems to stand. We might just add that there is another sense in which we look at this power of pardon, and that's that we have a government, as we recall, of checks and balances. And the president's power to pardon is one check on the judicial branch, that if we have a judge or even a jury that has behaved arbitrarily and unfairly, one way to address that is by the president's power to pardon. If we think that federal FBI agents or officers in the Department of Justice have acted vindictively in bringing charges against somebody like, for example, Roger Stone or like, for example, General Flynn, the president's power to pardon is a way of redressing that problem. And sometimes it becomes political, as perhaps it did in some of these pardons, but sometimes it's a way of avoiding vindictive prosecutions at a later time. And so anyway, this is a check that the Constitution clearly provides and a check that I think we'd all agree is a very important one. And I'm glad the president has this power and it certainly could be abused, but it's a power that I certainly would not want to see eliminated. So we'll pick up just the other side then of our commercial break here, Colonel, as we delve further into uh, Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Just a reminder for our listeners that you can access the archives of Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Go to Loving Liberty Ra- Loving Liberty. .net and that is where you will find all of them acts all of them put together and archived for your listening pleasure. We'll be back in just a few moments. Maybe you've heard about MediShare and you know what it is. It's the affordable alternative to health insurance. But you've wondered, can I really save a significant amount of money on my monthly health care bills? And the answer is an emphatic Yes, you can. You can save a lot of money, whether it's just for you or for an entire family. MediShare has an option for you. In fact, the typical family saves $500 a month switching to MediShare. And it really is the gold standard when it comes to healthcare sharing. You get free telehealth services. You get a huge network of doctors. You get great customer support. And you get the sense of security that comes from being a part of 400,000 people who share not just each other's medical bills, but purpose, too. MediShare is a community of Christians who pull together and pray for each other, which is very refreshing right now. If you want more info, it's so simple. You can get a price within two minutes. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Excuse me. Why don't you have life insurance yet? 
I've got diabetes, and I know the price will be through the roof for the pre-existing condition. Well, actually, SelectQuote makes it easy to get very affordable life insurance, even if you have a health issue. I'm listening. You'll get quotes from some of the country's most trusted carriers. Even with your diabetes, you can get around $250,000 in insurance for as little as a dollar a day. That would be amazing. <laughs> What's it called again? Select Quote. Just call or go to selectquote.com to get your free quote. Get the coverage you need at a price you can afford. Call 1-800-694-1010 or go to selectquote.com today. That's 1-800-694-1010 or selectquote.com. Selectquote. We shop. You save. Get full details on example policy at selectquote.com slash commercials. Monthly premiums vary based on health company and other factors. Not available in all states. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Want to dominate the stock market in 2021? Looking for higher profit potential? With the COVID vaccines, a shifting political landscape, and a new year, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to find explosive moves before they happen. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how. Make 2021 your year. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance and maximize your gains. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Go to vantagepointsoftware.com for terms, conditions, and privacy policy. Once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, we are making steady progress through Section, I'm sorry, Article 2 of the, uh, of the Constitution. Uh, where do we go next as we enter our final segment? Continuing with Article 2 and Section 2, the President has the power, by and with the consent of the Senate, to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. In other words, the president can enter into agreements with foreign countries, treaties, but it requires the concurrence, not of the whole legislature, but of the Senate, but a two-thirds vote of the Senate. And there's a couple reasons for this. John Jay, for example, in the Federalist Papers said that sometimes they might want to consider matters in some degree of confidence as they decide whether to confirm a treaty, and the Senate, being a much smaller body, would be able to keep confidences better than the House could, but also because they didn't want to have treaties made which might favor one section of this country versus another. Treaty, for example, with trade matters that might favor the North or favor the South. That's why they decided this had to be a two-thirds vote of the Senate, not just simply a simple majority of the Senate. And Another factor here, too, and that is that since the early 1900s, it seems like the president has had a practice of entering into what we call executive agreements. These are agreements that the president makes with foreign nations, and because they are termed executive agreements rather than termed treaties, the president has taken the position and the court has largely agreed in U.S. versus Belmont, Missouri versus Holland, Curtis Rice Export, and several other cases, that 
Yes, executive agreements by the president do not have to go to the Senate for confirmation. But they've never really defined what's the difference between an executive agreement and a treaty. A couple of differences I would suggest would be that perhaps a treaty has to be a more permanent matter, an executive agreement more temporary. Perhaps a treaty has to be on broader matters, an executive agreement on more specifics, like for example, what should be the quota rate on Argentine wheat this week as against next week and so on. But I am really skeptical of the whole power of being able to call something an executive agreement and thereby circumvent the United States Senate. I question the constitutionality of this. And at the very least, I'm hopeful that the court will eventually resolve this by defining what can be considered an executive agreement and what is really a treaty just under that disguise of executive agreement. We also do have certain trade agreements, NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, that you recall the Clinton administration negotiated. And then they said that this has to go to Congress and has to be approved by majority of both houses of Congress rather than a two-thirds vote of the Senate. And they took the position, which may be correct, but I have some questions about it. They took the position that Congress in Article 1, Section 8 has the authority to regulate commerce, and that included, as you recall, Indian commerce, interstate commerce, and international commerce, and that this was a trade regulation in international commerce rather than a treaty, and therefore required a majority vote of both houses of Congress rather than confirmation by two-thirds of the Senate. We also see that the, the president has the authority to appoint consuls, other public ministers, ambassadors, judges, and other officers of the United States, like cabinet officials and so on, subject to the advice and consent of a majority of the Senate. Doesn't say two-thirds here, it says majority. Well, it doesn't even say majority, but the presumption is anytime we're talking about congressional action, unless it specifies something more like two-thirds, it is just a simple majority. But one thing is not clear is what does it mean, advice and consent? Some think that this means that advice means that the president should seek the advice of the Senate before he makes an appointment and then get their consent after he makes the appointment. But that has never been clarified, and it seems like the senators can advise and consent or refuse to advise and consent on whatever basis they wish. With court appointments, cabinet officials, other things like this, we have usually take the position in this area that the president should have pretty broad discretion to appoint people that are in accord with his basic ideological viewpoint. In other words, President Biden, Biden should have the authority to appoint liberals to the court, but that he shouldn't be entitled to appoint people who are clearly unqualified or people who are clearly radical way, way beyond what the term liberal would mean. Likewise, on the conservative side, when you have an appointment by President Trump and the confirmations in these areas have become increasingly partisan on both sides, I'm afraid, and that, I'm afraid, is regrettable. It also goes on to say, though, that Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone. 
or in the heads of department or in courts of law. In other words, what do we mean by inferior officers is not quite clear. Usually we say that for appointment of cabinet heads or appointment of sub-cabinet heads, this will require the consent, advice and consent of the Senate. But that those below that level, the president could appoint alone if Congress authorizes him to do so, and they do so because otherwise they'd be awfully busy simply conferring appointments. We also see the power to make what we call recess appointments. And the recess appointment is, let's say, well, the Senate is not in session, and maybe a very important official like maybe the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense were to die, and we can't wait for the Senate to come back into session to confirm an appointment, the president has the power to make recess appointments during this time. This person that he makes a recess appointment will take office immediately, and he will hold office until the Senate either decides to confirm him as a regular appointment or not to confirm him, in which case he leaves office immediately, or if the Senate doesn't do anything at all, then that person leaves office at the end of the next term of the Senate. The recess appointment power is one that hasn't been used very often, but it is an important power that can be crucial in some cases. And then in Section 3, we see that the President gives information to Congress on the State of the Union. We call that the State of the Union Address, which has become an annual tradition, that he has the power to recommend that the Congress consider legislation. He doesn't have the power to introduce legislation. He can only recommend. And if he recommends legislation, it gets nowhere at all unless there is at least one congressman and one senator who is willing to sponsor it in Congress. And he has what is a pretty important power, the power on extraordinary occasions to convene both houses of Congress, like, for example, to convene them for a declaration of war in the event of an attack like Pearl Harbor. He has the power also to adjourn them and fix a time in which they are going to be reconvened. And he is given the responsibility of receiving ambassadors and other public ministers from other countries. It's commonly been understood that the power to receive ambassadors includes the power to not receive other ambassadors. And this includes essentially the power to recognize and not recognize foreign governments. In other words, by refusing an ambassador from communist China, he could in effect be saying, we do not recognize the government of communist China. And, and then he takes care that the laws shall be faithfully executed. And of course, in all of this, he has the assistance of the vice president. The one duty of the vice president is presiding over the Senate and casting the deciding vote when there is a tie vote in the Senate. Other than that, whatever duties the vice president has are going to be duties that the president delegates to the vice president. And in recent decades, there has been an increasing tendency of the president to assign duties to the vice president, which may be a good thing. But at any rate, those aren't explicitly set forth in Congress. And then Section 4, Section 4 of Article 2 deals with the impeachment of 
the president and other federal officers. We've already talked about that in great length as it was a very current event. And so we won't need to look at section four today. So we have completed the consideration of article two, the president. Next week, we're gonna go on to what Hamilton called the least dangerous branch of government, the judiciary, the Supreme Court of article three, and was it the least dangerous?